0: My guest today is Professor Nadine Strossen, who's Professor of Law Emerita at New York Law School. She's also the former president, American Civil Liberties Union from 1991 to 2008. Welcome, Nadine.
1: I'm so happy to be here, Gil. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for doing this. Um, yeah, ACLU from 1991 to 2008, that's, that's a really long career. And the, the topics we're going to talk about today, you have a lot of, lot of experience with them and uh, good perspectives. I, I, I think about them, but I don't know a lot, lot about the legal and or even societal implications of these topics. And so, um, so I, I'm you know, hoping to learn from you on these topics. So the first uh, article is America's censored speech platforms. You say someone committed to robust freedom of speech for all, including for those who own communications platforms and those who communicate on them. I'm vexed by the monopolistic dominance of companies and their increasing restrictions on controversial speech and speakers. Yeah, so I do a lot of work on the <laughs> on these platforms, Nadine. So I have a small AI company, and we talk a little bit about the algorithms and all that stuff. Uh, but more broadly, this has been a problem, right? So these companies have power; uh, they could, they're private companies. They can do pretty much anything they want. It looks like that's that's within the within the legal framework. But I always felt that these types of questions are sort of binary in its outcome so if you you know either you have free speech or you don't you don't you know i don't think there is sort of a midway between free speech and not having free speech um but we are sort of in the midway right so so what it's a bit of a slippery slope isn't it so 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 what do you think about this
1: Well, this, you've referred to so many complicated, interrelated issues. So let me try to unpack them a bit for our our listeners. Uh, First of all, thank you for recognizing what many people don't, which is that the powerful private sector tech platforms where so much communication takes place today, and if you can't have access to certain dominant platforms, your message really uh, has a very hard time reaching the audience you want, right? And yet, for all the power they have, uh, which exceeds the powers that governments have had in the past, right, they are not subject to the constitutional constraints that limit government power. You recognize this, Gil, but most people do not understand that the First Amendment, with its wonderful guarantee of freedom of speech, only applies to government actors to, in the First Amendment literally says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the speech. The Supreme Court has interpreted that to mean not only Congress, but any government official. But if you're Microsoft or Facebook or any other tech platform, uh, not only do you not have any obligation to protect free speech rights of your users, you have your own free speech rights including to decide what messages and what speakers you will host and which ones you will not host I'm very supportive of the free speech rights of members of the private sector. I'm very strongly opposed to heavy-handed government regulation, telling them what they must host and what they must not host, and we have a lot of regulations that are proposed in Congress right, right now that would do just that. And in state legislatures, I think that's very dangerous. Just the way, you know, I wouldn't want you to be forced to host me or anybody else on your podcast. That's your own editorial discretion. On the other hand, as a practical matter, we do have to uh, come up with some other approach to limit the extent to which um, a powerful, powerful, unaccountable private sector actors really have a stranglehold over not only individual communications, but also public discourse. So I was very distressed when Twitter and Facebook kicked Donald Trump off their platforms. And I say that not at all because I'm a supporter of Donald (laughs) Trump. Whether I am or whether I'm not is completely irrelevant. The point is that at that time, he was the commander in chief. He was the leader of the free world, the duly elected president of the United States. And not only was it important for him to be able to communicate with a large number of constituents, but freedom of speech also entails the right of, of listeners to choose to hear the message and to have an opportunity to respond to it. By the way, many people analyzed the uh, most recent presidential election as significantly turning on uh, the disenchantment that many um, uh, moderate Republicans felt toward Trump as a result of his messages on social media. So as I, I say, it's irrelevant whether you support him or not. The point is getting the message out there so that we, the people, can make our decisions as we're entitled to under the Constitution is really important. And the piece that you mentioned was one that had been commissioned uh, by Tablet Magazine, asking me to come up with some, uh, suggest some approaches that would respect free speech rights of the platforms and of abusers. So, let me start, Gil, with what I think is the ideal, and I'm speaking not only for myself, but digital rights advocates generally. Our ideal situation would be what's often called user empowerment, user agency, user freedom of choice. Each of us should have the opportunity to uh, access whatever information we choose and to not see information or expression that uh, is uncongenial with our ideas. And, And to do that, it would really be important to have many, many, many options not the strict limited gatekeeper controls that we have now with the platformization of the internet. The ideal of the internet when it was first invented was that you know there would be this multiplicity of different platforms and different forums and each one of us could choose our own filtering options, our own blocking options, and they wouldn't be dictated by either government or by a handful of uh, overly powerful private sector actors.
0: So, so let me. Uh, so, I don't have strong opinions on this either way or uh, either way, uh, Nadine. But let me ask you this. So, I see sort of an intersection here between sort of free market mm-hmm. capitalism
1: mm-hmm.
0: and this idea that um, private companies could do business as they choose to do, mm-hmm. uh, and as you say, the the First Amendment don't really apply to them. Um, so it's a bit of an intersection between, let's say, the US uh, expectations of how things should work, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so, you know, Google, Facebook, and Twitter, I don't want to, uh, I mean, there are others. If they want to do business the way that they would like to do,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, it's a bit in the, in the context of free market capitalism, isn't it?
1: Yes. But, you know, I'm not an economic expert myself, but I happen to be married to an economics professor who very much <laughs> supports um, free markets in ideas as well as in commerce. And But he points out that even for classic free market defenders, they don't defend the market as, as always working perfectly. And uh, the market can be flawed. And that's one of the purposes of antitrust laws. Or it's the purpose of antitrust laws is uh, when the market is not working as it should ideally, then government intervention uh, to uh, undo monopoly power or reduce monopoly power is, is, is consistent with the notion of uh, an and actually efficient uh, uh, economic marketplace. And so one of the um, strategies that is now being explored in Europe and the United States are antitrust remedies. I'm, 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 I just, I, I stress that they should be explored, Gil, because the question of uh, what is, you know, how do you define the market and how do you determine how much power is too much and how much concentration is too much? These are very complicated issues and, and we can't jump to conclusions.
0: Yeah, I, I love that point, Nadine, so, um people have sometimes misimpression of free market capitalism. Free market capitalism doesn't mean that there are no rules. Um, It means that rules apply equally (laughs) to everybody. And so uh, antitrust laws. So we have half a dozen companies Mm -hmm. with thousands of lawyers Mm -hmm. manufacturing patents and creating monopoly positions. Mm-hmm. And it appears that we have failed to to really implement existing laws in antitrust mm-hmm. area. I mean, we know who these companies are. they are mm-hmm. holding significant monopoly mm-hmm. power, as you say in this in mm-hmm. this article,
1: and that's that's a threat not only to economic equity and, 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 you know, the way the market, uh, economic marketplace should function, but also to democracy. I think, you know, when I've often made the point that when Donald Trump was president, uh, he arguably had less power than Mark Zuckerberg. Think about it. Uh, Trump was subject to impeachment, and he was impeached. Zuckerberg isn't subject to impeachment. (laughs) Trump was subject to not being reelected, and he wasn't reelected, but nobody can diselect Mark Zuckerberg. Trump is subject to being sued for violating the First Amendment, and he was sued for violating the First Amendment and other constitutional rights, but Zuckerberg, as a Private sector actor is not subject to constitutional lawsuits, Uh, not to mention that checks and balances that exist to check, you know, the executive branch of the federal government is checked and balanced by the legislative and judicial branches and by state and local governments. Again, those checks and balances don't apply in the private sector. So I think it's a very, very scary situation, unprecedented, and I'm glad that there are many proposals that are now being examined in Congress and being debated. I seriously by scholars. Uh, let me mention one other, since you're an expert in technology. And by the way, I really respect everything that you've achieved, even beyond this podcast. I'm very, very you happy. You've had a very impressive career. Uh, but a technological approach, would, which has been advocated, is that um, interoperable equipment software should be required to be installable on each of the major tech platforms platforms in ways that would not violate privacy, uh, but that would allow individual customers to choose what filtering and content curating and moderating practices they wanted to apply, and they could choose third parties that would implement that, they could delegate it to third parties. So it wouldn't have to be a one-size-fits-all that's dictated uh, to all of us by this handful of, of tech giants.
0: Yeah. So, so would you say, Nadine, that um, I, I'm simplifying this a little bit? But um, if mm. antitrust laws are implemented uniformly, mm. and we don't have monopoly power, let's say in the tech world, which is mm. not the case today, we have significant monopoly power. Then, do you think this problem will uh, substantially reduce?
1: I'm not sure about that and I really have to say I'm not an antitrust expert and the experts that I do respect in that area are saying it's not clear that there is monopoly power Uh, Hmm. that that's something that really depends on the facts and or or it could be that there is some kind of natural monopoly. And so it's not gonna be effective to just break up these companies. So even if they are exercising a great amount of power, it's not clear what the appropriate remedy would be. So all I will say on that is I'm agnostic because the experts I respect are themselves agnostic, saying this is a potential approach that bears investigation, but we can't yet draw uh, any conclusions. I think certainly uh, if we could foster more entrance into the field more options for users to choose among that would be extremely desirable right to give us more choices and not be beholden to these few companies but how do we achieve that Uh, other possible routes that have been suggested by various experts gill include potentially, and again, all of this is just potential, uh, potentially treating these companies as so-called public utilities. Uh, Sometimes they're referred to as public accommodations, common carriers, uh, and the idea there would be that they constitute critical infrastructure similar to water and electricity and the railroads in past eras, and that you cannot really uh, have an equal shot at being a fully participating member of a society uh, unless you have access to these basic services. And so, therefore, they should be regulated in a way that requires them to provide equal, fair, non-discriminatory access to all people. In the last year, interestingly enough, proposals to consider that approach have been advocated by very ideologically diverse law professors, including some who are libertarian, some who are conservative, some who are liberal and progressive. And what's really astounding to me is that you have even libertarian oriented uh, law and economics type people coming from the University of Chicago who are saying this warrants looking into. That's rather startling. Uh, and I think it shows the, the the great problem that we have now, so that people are being very creative and open-minded about potential solutions. Uh, let me say, you know, from a free speech perspective, freedom—the notion of the ideal of freedom of speech—is something that I think we should pursue in all important spheres, even the private sector. Yes, the constitution is not available. The first amendment is not available as a tool for us to promote free speech in the private sector. So that means we should look for other tools. Uh, Let me, we don't give up, right? And let me give an example that again, since people don't usually think of this, uh, the fact that the constitution only applies to the government, let me give another really important example. Why did we have to pass the landmark 1964 Civil Rights Act to prevent discrimination on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, and so forth. The Constitution has had an equal protection guarantee since shortly after the Civil War. Well, guess what? That equal protection guarantee only applies to the government. So if you wanted to prevent and outlaw, discrimination by powerful private sector entities including employers and landlords and restaurants and so forth you needed a different source of law not the constitution itself and so you passed a federal statute Uh, so we have to look for other mechanisms including perhaps federal statutes that will protect significant free speech interests even in in these private arenas
0: yeah I'm not an economist, Nadine, but I, I, I very much prefer uh, these companies to be looked at as uh, natural monopolies. Mm-hmm. Uh, search is a utility. I mean, mm-hmm. we can prove that without any doubt. <laughs> search is a utility. And so, uh, if they're natural monopolies, then they have to be regulated on a mm-hmm. return basis, just like mm-hmm. we do electric power mm-hmm. and other things. And we are there now. I think you know, um, and so the if if different people, you know, libertarians and others uh, are all sort of converging on that idea, which is mathematically, I think, is very demonstrable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Then the question is, how do we actually get this into into practice?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: that's where all the lobbying and all that stuff happens, yes. right? Yes. So. <laughs> and-
1: it's it. So um, first of all, to say that something should be treated as a as a as a natural monopoly, a public utility is only the start of the analysis, not the end of the analysis, because then the question becomes, well, exactly which regulations should be imposed. And I know there was a lot of lobbying in history that went into the public utility laws that we have and um, and they exist at the level of every state individually. In addition to some national laws, and you're darn right, that within these companies, there are thousands of lawyers and thousands of, of lobbyists, Um uh, so this is going to be a long process. But uh, there is a big, big appetite on the part of lawmakers at every level of government and in both parties to uh, to do something. And and I should get beyond the United States. I mean, this is of international concern. And as you no doubt know, the European Union has been in advance of the United States in um, passing and enforcing antitrust laws as well as copyright laws. And, and other countries are, are jumping into the fray. Now, I'm not endorsing all of these laws by any stretch of the imagination, because among other things they're doing is requiring the companies to act in even more sensorial ways than they already do. Uh, Germany, for example, was the first to pass an extremely strict law several years ago uh, that requires companies to take down anything that is reported as violating German laws, uh, on speech within an absurdly short time i think it's something like 24 hours and if not they face enormous fines uh, millions and millions of dollars both for the company and for actual individual officers so it, compl- it it constitutes a complete one-way incentive right if you're you face a potential liability of such great magnitude for keeping something up and nobody's going to sue you has it nobody has any legal recourse to sue you for improperly taking it down, well, then why not err in favor of taking down too much rather than too little? And, and within minutes after the law went into effect, uh, statements by leading politicians were taken down, uh, statements by satirists were taken down, statements by artists were taken down, uh, all on the rationale that they constituted illegal hate speech under German law. So that's just an example of, you know, the fact that there are some problems and we could use some regulation. The devil is in the details, and there are a lot of details to be examined here.
0: A lot of details, yeah. I mean, so I know that you have some views on this. So uh, from my perspective, censoring is a slippery slope. Um, mm-hmm. you, you can't really control it in a, in an optimum way. Um, Nadine, I have to say, I know, I have grown to be less of a fan of human
1: mm-hmm. and
0: more of a fan of machines,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> uh, for a variety of reasons. A human is uh, I would I would call a human a walking bundle of biases mm-hmm. based on you know whatever experiences you have had in the past. Mm-hmm. There's a machine is less so, but then it has its own complications. Mm-hmm. And so If we were to sort of get into the censoring area, which I, Mm. I think it's a it's a problematic concept, do you see machines doing better than humans?
1: Uh, no, uh, for the reason that, he, that machine. first of all, I completely agree with you. The more we know about human psychology, the more aware we are of cognitive biases. Uh, I think the fact that we are aware that they exist mean that we can take steps to counteract them. That's all very positive. But um, I think uh, we would be foolish if we did not recognize these often implicit or unconscious biases. Uh, that said, it is we very human humans who program the machines, right, and who train them. And not surprisingly, studies have been done uh, that show that algorithmic methods for detecting, for example, hate speech, other kinds of problematic controversial expression online, show at least as many biases, uh, if not more so, than the human beings which designed them. So last summer, uh, two major studies were uh, released at the conference of the, I hadn't even known that this organization existed, maybe you as a tech expert did, uh, called the Association of Computational Linguistics. Computational linguistics. And these were two studies that were done by international teams of top researchers, top universities around the world. And both of them found that uh, the algorithms were discriminating against black speakers and people who used what they call black English, that even the very same terms that were used by those speakers uh, were disproportionately deemed to be hate speech than when the same terms were used by non-black speakers. So I think we have to recognize that our own biases so far seem to be replicated in, in the machines that we create and program.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, cleaning uh, using historical data. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what machine learning, deep learning techniques do. Um, has a lot of problems. So somewhat unrelated, but there was a uh, there was a insurance company in New York area that uh, using machine learning techniques, um, you know, sort of figured out how much care is demanded or required for every patient. And ironically, it found that uh, African Americans required less care mm. compared to non-African Americans. And the rationale was that if you look at historical data, African-Americans got less care. Yeah. And so this is a, a simplistic extrapolation of history mm-hmm. in the future. And so it has, it has a lot of complications. But I wondered, yeah, so I, so I don't know what the, what the right solution is, Nareen, but do, do, you, do you think censoring can be done? Is, is, is it a faulty instrument or is it something that we could actually
1: implement? Here again, the, the devil is in the details, Gil, and I'm gonna go back to a point that you made at the very beginning where I, I, I disagree with you if I understood your point. You said that uh, it's a binary. You either have free speech or you don't have free speech. And actually, I, I respectfully disagree, but it may just be a matter of different terminology that we're using. Yes because even the very strong free speech protection that the modern U.S. Supreme Court has upheld under the First Amendment is not absolute. Mm -hmm. Even the strongest champion of free speech recognizes that some speech in some circumstances should be restricted. I personally use the term censorship to refer to speech restrictions that I think are not justified by the appropriate principles that are now reflected in U.S. law Uh, and, by the way, are also reflected in United Nations free speech law. The international law of free speech is very speech protective. And I want to distinguish it from European law, you know, other regional law, other law in an other individual countries. So I'm specifically talking about international law under United Nations treaties that have been ratified by almost every country in the world. And in recent history, those treaties have been interpreted in a very speech protective way that almost are completely coextensive with the speech protective principles under modern First Amendment law. I really want to stress that, Gil, because there are so many false Um, distorted generalizations that we hear about free speech and the First Amendment. Oh, America is totally exceptional and it absolutely protects free speech. (laughs) Neither of those generalizations is true. So, and in fact, uh, the restrictions that are permitted under American and international law really make a great deal of common sense. They allow the most dangerous speech to be outlawed, but they also, outlaw the most dangerous censorship so in a nutshell speech can be restricted when in particular circumstances it directly causes or threatens certain specific imminent serious harm and the only way to prevent the harm is by restricting the speech and this is often called the emergency principle Uh, under international law they use the term necessary And that involves the concept of least restrictive alternative. If there is a measure that the government could take to deal with whatever the harm is that the speech is feared to cause, if there could be a non-sensorial alternative, you know, you think somebody's going to commit violence because they hear a speech advocating violence. Well, the first thing you do is, you know, you send in law enforcement to stop them from committing a violent act. You only suppress the speech itself as a last resort. And that really makes a great deal of common sense. Um, So, and the Supreme Court has recognized many specific types of circumstances where speech does constitute an emergency. And let me mention just a couple, one that has become very relevant after the events of January 6th, uh, this year, uh, intentional incitement of imminent violence where the violence or imminent violence or other lawless conduct where the violence or lawlessness is likely to happen imminently. And many people are arguing that speech by Donald Trump and others on January 6th and leading up to January 6th does satisfy that standard. It's a very fact-specific question and so we'll need to get all the facts and different people can argue different ways but arguably it it at least potentially applies another example which is relevant in the context of um, charlottesville in 2017 and that's been in the news again recently because of this civil conspiracy lawsuit uh, which was successful and by the way as a free speech advocate i completely supported that lawsuit because it was based on detailed evidence that uh, there were plans and there were steps taken to implement the plans uh, among co-conspirators, individuals, and organizations to carry out violent and lawless conduct. So a conspiracy to violate people's civil rights and to engage in violence is punishable conduct. Like all conspiracies, it's carried out by words, by communications, by expression, but even the strongest supporter of free speech would not argue, therefore the conspiracy should not be punished. Um, Likewise, um, when you go back to the events in in 2017, the night uh, before the the, the day when they had the the protest and Heather Heyer was murdered, um, the night before, you may remember, there was a torchlight parade by the white supremacists. And They were uttering absolutely vicious, racist, anti-Semitic language. That alone would not be enough to justify punishing them. But they also uh, were marching in a menacing fashion, approaching the counter demonstrators who were ringed around the statue of Thomas Jefferson. And they approached very close to them, brandishing lighted tiki torches. Our law sensibly recognizes that as what it calls a true threat. Yeah, the speaker is conveying ideas, but the speaker is also intending to convey a reasonable fear that you will be subject to some kind of of harm. And even if they don't intend to actually harm you, the fact that they intend to instill the fear is already harm enough, right? Because if you're a counter demonstrator, you're going to be chilled from exercising your free speech rights. You may actually run away to protect your physical safety. So our law is is very, very sensible. And uh, what it does prevent the government from doing, and this is what I call sense, which which I oppose, is um, having more latitude to punish speech either solely because of disagreement with the idea that the speech is conveying. That's a real no-no. That's called the viewpoint neutrality principle. You disagree with the idea, then you explain why. You argue back. You refute it. Um, or Uh, our law also prohibits censoring speech because of a more indirect speculative possible connection to harm sometime in the future, not the tight and direct causal connection of the emergency and necessity principle. And that's really important because when you think about it, all speech can potentially cause harm at some point in the future, right? If that's going to be our standard, then we're that's the slippery slope that you're talking about uh, from censorship.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know much about this, uh, Nareen. So, you know, I grew up in India, mm-hmm. so I spent half my life there and half my life here in the U.S. And uh, the place I grew up in India was, you know, uh, democratically elected Marxist government <laughs> for half its life. And I remember growing up with no issue saying anything mm-hmm. I want to say protest against anything I want to protest against um, but I, I had somebody from Switzerland on uh, yesterday and she was saying she she actually went to school here in Connecticut and she was saying I don't I don't really recognize the country <laughs> anymore and she has been there in Switzerland for 20 years. Um, so something seems to have happened to us um,
1: and in I, India too you're saying India also has changed yes.
0: In India has changed, but I, I don't know how it has changed because I have you know, I, I don't really uh, track it anymore. I do. Uh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not that I ever had the pleasure of living there, but um, because I follow these issues and in fact, uh, Human Rights Watch, a respected international human rights organization, recently did a major report on hate speech laws in India and how they're being abused to censor political dissidents and minority groups, You know, the, including the very groups that were intended to be protected by the laws. And of course, we've seen the the censorship of protesters against government policies there.
0: Right. Yeah. So I guess all democracies are changing, maybe not for not for the better, <laughs> but for the worse. Um, but I want to get to another subject that you you have written about. Uh, it's sort of related: resisting cancel culture. Mm-hmm. It's very topical. Uh, you say promoting dialogue, debate, and free speech in the college classroom. Mm-hmm. Recent and wide-ranging debate has all but vanished from American college campus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so debate. Um, again, you know, just just going back to my past, um, we we used to fiercely debate, you know, on anything, any idea, any political question. Uh, we don't have debates anymore, right? In the U.S., it, you, you know, I, I sometimes uh, think about this like a blue shirt, red shirt politics. Mm-hmm. So I go out and I see a blue shirt guy, and I say, oh, that guy should be good," or mm-hmm. whatever. Or I see a red shirt guy, you know. Um, I don't take um, arguments into account. I don't analyze those arguments. I don't provide counter arguments. I just say, if you wear blue shirt or red shirt, that's good enough for me. Uh, that's where we are, it, look, it seems to me.
1: A, a couple of points, Gil. Uh, first of all, I think that the uh, framers of the American Constitution had it right when they warned us from the beginning that democracy is not something that is just achieved and handed to you on a silver platter and then it remains. You, it's, a, it, it's an opportunity that you have to continue to nourish and fight for, right? So Benjamin Franklin famously said when he was coming out of the Constitutional Convention and somebody said to him, a bystander, what have you done in there? Uh, and he said, uh, we've created a republic if you can keep it and thomas jefferson supposedly said uh, who knows whether he said it but he could have um eternal vigilance is the price of liberty and, you know, even the founder of the ACLU 101 years ago um, said uh, no fight for civil liberties ever stays won. So, and I think that's, that's correct because democracy is only vibrant and meaningful if each generation, each individual understands anew and fights for anew. Uh, what the basic principles are. So, you know, maybe from the course of history, we look back and we say, you know, sometimes in some eras, we're taking two steps forward and one step back and in other eras, it's the other way around. Uh, I, I t- Taking the long view, there's absolutely no doubt, speaking for my country, and I assume the same is true of India, I'm not such a scholar of your really robust democracy, uh, there, your former um, uh, home country, um, but speaking for the United States, there's no doubt that we have made enormous strides for all of the struggles that we still have in front of us. In terms of equality, as we've already talked about, in terms of free speech, in terms of fundamental fairness, all of the core civil liberties principles, we still have a long way to go. But, boy, are we infinitely further than we were in 1776, or even than we were in 1976. Uh, uh, you know, the United States Supreme Court did not strongly protect freedom of speech as a legal matter until well into the 1960s the second half of the 20th century you know when I was born I, McCarthyism was 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 holding sway you talk about cancel culture people were completely self-censoring if they had any views that might be seen as as left of center and you know potentially could, they could be branded as a communist or a socialist and that was a, the death knell to their careers and uh, also to their their Social lives, and we saw a great deal of intimidation and cowardice on university campuses, exactly what we're complaining about today, right? Which should be the bastion of free speech and critical thinking, and yet universities were firing tenured professors merely for teaching classic works of Marxism. Um, throughout the South, the Civil Rights Movement was tarred with the C word. You know, communist. Martin Luther King was attacked as being a communist. Southern states passed speaker ban laws that prohibited from campus not only anybody who was associated with a communist or socialist party, but members of the Civil Rights struggle were were banned from those campuses as well. So it's a recurrent issue. I bring up some of those past issues. Uh, Because I want today's progressive students to understand that the same. Arguments they that they are making in favor of censoring conservatives were used against people like them a generation or two ago, and I really believe that uh, if you want free speech for any idea or for any cause, if you want equal treatment for any group or individual, you have to, as a strategic matter as well as as a principled matter, have to neutrally advocate it uh, as 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 neutral principles that apply to everybody, including people you disagree yeah, with.
0: Yeah. Let me push on that a little bit, Nadine. So mm-hmm. um, in spite of all the progress that you say we've made for 250 years, weren't we pretty precariously close to losing all of that just a year ago?
1: Yeah. Uh, it's uh, that was a very very scary situation. in In my adult lifetime, we've had other scary situations, um, and certainly throughout U- U.S. history, many more. Obviously, the worst was the the Civil War when the nation um, literally fragmented. But in the early decades of the twentieth century, I mean, there was a very very strong um anarchist and when i say very very strong yes very strong anarchist movement and and socialist movement and communist movement that were are explicitly seeking to um to end uh, our our current form of government there were anarchist bombings all over the country uh, of individuals uh, there were general strikes in a number of cities. I mean, people were really terrified and, and social. And then you add the economic collapse of the of the, 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 the Great Crash and, and the Great Depression. I mean, democracy was very, very fragile at that point. It went through very hard times. And um, again, uh, even in World War II, which economically revitalize the United States. I mean, the fact that we could um, incarcerate 120,000 people just because of their ethnic background at the very time that we were fighting that kind of policy in Europe, I mean, that to me is like an existential threat to uh, our whole democratic order. When the 9-11 terrorist bombings occurred, we had such a backlash against civil liberties and human rights in particular uh uh of uh, uh, young men who came from south asia or the or the middle east and and were muslim i mean subjected to horrible deprivations of rights with. Out any um, benefit in terms of of actually uh, re- responding to or deterring terrorism, and and all of us forfeited, I think, perpetually uh, a great deal of privacy against government surveillance that was put in place and was supposed to be sunsetted, but has never been sunsetted. So, you know, there are con- these challenges are are constant, and um, that's why the eternal vigilance is is really necessary. And by the way, it's wonderful that we have podcasts like yours as <laughs> well as, ser- I'm really serious, and that we have um, organizations like the ACLU and Human Rights Watch and countless others. Um, we have a vibrant civil society. That's one of the checks and balances. And journalism, which you're engaging in, is, is another one of the checks and balances that is really essential to 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 making democracy a reality and not just dead words on a piece of parchment
0: conversations always help but what is scary for me is democracy as you say remains fragile Mm -hmm. and if a singular person can rewind time back then uh, there's a systemic risk to democracy um, and in spite of all the accomplishments, all the progress that we have made, mm-hmm. we could go back yeah. 100, 200 mm-hmm. years in mm-hmm. the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. Um, 75 million people in the country seem to believe that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so democracy is the power of the the will of the people. Mm-hmm. So if the if the majority of the country believes rewinding time back 200 years is perfectly fine i'm pretty sure we're going to get there um <laughs> at some point if
1: we don't have and it's, it's sobering i mean the, the framers were very aware of this i don't know if you've read the federalist papers i haven't read them for a long time but they were they're, they're fascinating because i mean um the authors were very very familiar with history and in particular the past democracies that had existed in other countries going back to ancient times and they they saw that you know none of them had survived very long and they really analyzed what were the factors that that did them in and how can we um not eliminate you could never eliminate the risks but how can we reduce the risks what kinds of um, fail-safe systems can we create and, and one of the things that they did, which I thought think is brilliant, is to not create a pure democracy, that um, it's a democratic republic. Yes, the majority of people, as you indicate, do get to make most policy decisions through their elected officials who are accountable to them. But the framers rightly determined that there are some rights that are so fundamental um, and some structures that are so essential that no majority can take them away, no matter how strong and popular the majority is. And and this is, of course, where the Bill of Rights comes in. It's also where the judicial branch, uh, particularly of the federal government, comes in. And I say particularly of the federal government because uh, federal courts under the Constitution are Uh, not subject to election. And uh, the judges of all the federal courts, not only the Supreme Court, are essentially guaranteed lifetime tenure Uh, during good behavior, so they can be impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors, but that's a a very high standard. And early on it was established that this does not mean that their decisions, that their rulings are unpopular. It has to be you know, like corruption or some other crime uh, that has nothing to do with disagreeing with their interpretation of the constitution. And throughout our history, we have a long track record of federal judges um, serving as the brakes on majoritarian, anti-democratic, anti-minority rights, anti-individual rights uh, impulses. That's why I, I, I have to tell you, I'm very, very concerned about the politicization of federal courts, including the Supreme Court. I think that is a very, very serious danger uh, that we have to do everything we can to avoid. And it's clear that the Supreme Court justices are also very concerned about that. They're going around giving speeches about how they aren't political, they aren't partisan hacks. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, my my pessimism comes from the fact that we almost had a coup Mm
1: -hmm.
0: in the U.S. Just like any, you know, developing country, mm-hmm. um, autocratic uh, system. We almost had a coup mm-hmm. <laughs> in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, which tells me that we are precariously positioned, mm-hmm. in spite of all of our progress,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that that uh, we believe we have done.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So the question I think for the next generation is. You know, in financial markets, we talk about this sort of a systemic risk or sort of tail risk, right? So you can do, I mean, you invest in stock market, you start making incremental money, Mm -hmm. and one day you get wiped out like a hedge fund. Mm -hmm. Um, Democracy uh, Mm -hmm. is sort of like that in my view. Uh, Mm -hmm. Democracy could get wiped out Mm -hmm. by one person or a few people.
1: I don't think it's it it can be done by one person or a few people, and I agree with you that what we faced on January sixth was and in the you know what leading up to it and the aftermath from it are very very sobering and frightening um, events, and they're like wake up calls. But we shouldn't lose sight of the positive of the many many different actors in um, society that that curb that including members of the president's own party indeed his own vice president um, including government officials at the state and local level all over the country including republicans um, including law enforcement and um, defense uh, uh, military personnel uh and citizens and civil society organizations all over the country now redoubling their commitment to democracy so i think it's it, it it you know as biden said about the omicron variant we you know we should take it seriously but we shouldn't panic we shouldn't give up we, we should we should definitely reinforce our institutions uh, in our democratic system of government but not abandon them <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm gratified, Nadine, that you're optimistic. Um,
1: An activist without being an optimist.
0: I mean, you have seen this. You have lived through it, and so you have the the perspective on this. So,
1: Gil, my father, as I said, I think I said, uh, was a Holocaust survivor. You know, he was born in Berlin in 1922. I mean, it was the Weimar Republic. It was a thriving democracy. Uh, obviously, didn't have the long history of um, democracy that the United States had, but it was very advanced and culturally and economically advanced. And look what happened to Germany. I keep, you know, the way the the framers of the Constitution were were fretting about what happened to those democracies in the past. I, I read everything I can about. Uh, what accounts for what happened in Germany where you know where Jews were so well integrated and felt they really had found a safe haven you know how could they they then be subject to mass extermination um and so that is very sobering. i I really think that there's nothing exceptional about the United States that it ha- could happen in Germany um, is a, a lesson that that it could happen here. Uh, that said, we haven't faced anything. Approaching uh, fascism and Nazism and, and the Holocaust in this country. Uh, for again, I say all of that not at all, so we can rest on our laurels and say, "Oh, you know, we've achieved nirvana." Uh, exactly the opposite. We should be encouraged that to continue the struggle for liberty and justice and equality for all, uh, because we have made enormous progress, and and therefore it's worth continuing to fight for those goals.
0: Yeah, I have to say, um, you know, again, uh, when I was growing up, it was U.S. or bust. There uh. was a single, single objective function. Um, and, and it was true for a lot of international students in the 80s and 90s. I wonder if it is true anymore. It's a good temperature check, right? Yeah. Um, right. Are, we, are we sort of staying where we are?
1: my my husband by the way is in the same category he's a bit older than you um but came to the united states specifically for higher education uh he was born in the middle east and grew up in europe and and came here for his studies and stayed um, and I, I follow, uh, because I work a lot on issues that relate to academic freedom and other issues affecting campuses, every single day I read Inside Higher Education and the Chronicle of Higher Education to specialized newsletters and, and one of the subjects that they've been giving a lot of attention to, um, especially given the policies of the Trump administration about immigration and also policies relating to to COVID. Um, there's a great deal of concern about declining welcome mats for uh, international students in the United States. It's becoming more expensive and less hospitable for them to come here. But this is of great, great concern because it's recognized that, I mean, this is not only a benefit that we provide, and I think for all of its warts, our educational system is still outstanding um, compared to, to to many others. It's also outstandingly expensive, which is a real problem. Um, But it's also of such incalculable benefit to the United States when you think of all of the, you know, great scientists and economists and, and, and other achievers, doctors in this country who have come from overseas. Uh, you know, think of the, the people who were in, the scientists who were involved in developing the COVID vaccine and treatment. I mean, so many of them are, are immigrants to this country who initially came here as, as students. So this is a a very serious concern. I agree with
0: you. Yes. Yeah, so so, I, so I, I had somebody from Northwestern talking about Syrian refugees recently, and I I, I, I don't know all the numbers, but I mean there has been seven million Syrians displaced. Uh, one and a half million Syrians went out of out of the country, and Germany took half a million of them. Um, U.S. took two hundred thousand. Uh, U.S. took twenty thousand. Sorry, um, and Angela Merkel's policy was to bring in the Syrians into Germany, and it appears that from a, if you purely look at it from an economic perspective, that's a huge, huge success. So countries that are aging, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't require a lot of lot of brain power to understand that. You need immigration to yeah. to almost survive.
1: Yeah, you're preaching to the choir, and I love Angela Merkel. And she, I mean, I did not, I disagree with some of her policies, but <laughs> I mean, she was such a, a hero and such a. Uh, A pillar of democracy, Uh, and I suppose it's not a coincidence that she grew up in a repressive regime, because I think that tends to uh, make you appreciate what people who grow up in democracies too often take for granted and, and what an inspiration she was on on those issues. Um, and I, I, I apologize that I have not followed this as closely as I should. I have heard critiques that the Biden administration has not done enough to overturn some of the anti-immigrant and anti-refugee policies of the, of the Trump administration. Certainly, I've heard a lot of complaints about tr- most recently of treatment of Afghans, uh, including those who worked um for and with United States Armed Forces for and at great personal risk and risk to their families, So uh, that's very troubling. And and you really make the real, the important point, Gil, that this is not only a matter of human decency and compassion and justice, uh, but it's also economically in our interest. So, you know, you get the both, best of both worlds. You're helping
0: somebody else, but you're also helping yourselves yeah yeah exactly. So um, when you look forward, I, I I love your optimism, Nadine i I, I love it. Uh, so 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 just look forward five, ten years. I mean, we have a whole sort of demographic shift happening, right? So um we we talked recently about sort of how the millennials feel about work, um, jobs, um, you know, uh, those types of things. so, so, just just look forward ten years from now, our generation had certain expectations, but we are going to go away at some point. You know? <laughs> the next generation is going to take over, and this seem to be sort of different in the American context. Uh, do you agree with that or, um, or how, how do you feel about that
1: the uh, I, I I have not followed this closely. I have mostly followed it in the context of issues that are of central concern to me, including free speech, and there, uh, I, the polls are, are a little bit inconsistent. Some polls show that. The older people are, the more supportive they are of free speech on the whole so that the boomers are more supportive than the millennials and the millennials more supportive than the next generation and so Mm. forth. Um, But other studies I've seen suggest that it's not until a generation or younger than the millennials that we start to see less support for civil liberties so that's still very much up in the air um i think we just don't have enough data to safely make generalizations and Uh, i i and and i also do think that there is a uh, a human tendency to rebel against the status quo. So I think there, each generation probably is going to rebel a little bit uh, against those that came before it. So that leads to a pendulum swing, which I think is very healthy. Right? Maybe we go too far in one direction, and then we'll overcorrect in the other direction. But then it will swing back. Uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a great hero of mine, among many other people, revered her. Uh, one of her sayings was that uh, she was uh, quoting her husband, her dear husband, Marty, who said, you know, the pendulum is really a better national symbol for the United States than the mm. eagle, because we really do swing back and forth. And maybe that's inherent in our democracy. Well, wow, that,
0: that's really interesting. Marianne. So, so this idea that you want to sort of move away from the status quo seems to be programmatic. So every generation says, you know, who, whatever their parents did, I'm going mm-hmm. to do something different. <laughs> and so, so if so if if we sort of looked at free speech as sort of an you know an important construct, and you say the the next generation says, oh those old guys. Free speech. We don't want free speech. <laughs> that that is quite problematic, isn't it? I mean, is that what is that what's happening? Uh,
1: yes, but the, the, but now you know, really young people. And I spend a lot of time speaking to students, not only law school and college students, but high school and middle school students. And you know, those really younger students—they're rebelling against the kind of cancel culture pressure and the social media mobbing that um, characterizes those who are in college now or a little bit older than college, which is really, really interesting, right? So that means the pendulum is again, swing. you know, we're, we're several generations below mine now, and, and, and a lot of them are now very, very skeptical about censorship. And there's, a, again, a lot of speculation as to what's going on. And it could be that um, these younger students have grown up on social media. They understand how Um, powerful it is to be denounced and trolled and cancelled and called out. They've seen it impose horrible suffering on friends of theirs, Uh, and so they 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 want to curb that power. Uh, And I think that's a very healthy development.
0: Yeah, the electronic cancellation. Is not less expensive. Than uh, human sort of cancellation, right? (laughs) And and so when transaction costs are declining, I would imagine cancellation will, cancellations will continue to increase because you just have to, you know, uh, touch a switch and uh, you can cancel anybody.
1: Yeah. Um, speaking of cancelling, I'm unfortunately about to run out of time. I, I, I this is such an enjoyable conversation. At yeah, least with so me. much, yeah. I hope your listeners find it as interesting as I do. That's I terrific. really enjoyed yeah. talking to you.
0: Yeah, thanks so much, Nadine. Yeah, stay safe, thank you. Oh, you, you
1: too. Um, thank you so much for hosting me, Gil, and all best wishes.
0: Thank you. Bye. Bye.